Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. Have you ever seen, um, kind of in daytime television, the afternoons when the talk show hosts come on, uh, these talk shows that have guests on and we're trying to figure out the paternity of someone's children. I'm talking about Maury Povich or uh, you know, uh, Jerry S- uh, Springer or whoever else it might be. They have these shows where uh, they'll bring on a couple with a, a child and they'll kind of talk about who the father is and, and all of a sudden you know, the man is just devastated because he might not be the father. This is the height of dysfunction. It's intentionally ridiculous. Mom doesn't know who the father is. The man who's been raising the child, loves the child, is kind of on the brink of devastation. And so what happens is Mary, Maury or whoever the host is holds up a card and he says, I have the paternity test results here. And the test results show. And then he goes on to make an announcement about who the father is. And someone ends up falling on the floor weeping. And someone else is ecstatic, jumping in the air for joy. Now, all of this is staged. We know this. But this is America. Watching eagerly as the details of someone's life are laid out for everyone to see this is who we are. In John 6 through 8, Jesus has been presenting himself to the people of Israel. And particularly in John 7 through 8, as the Jews remember God's faithfulness amidst the Exodus, they're celebrating this Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus has been presenting himself as the sent Son of God. He does nothing on his own. Rather, he's consistently performing what his Father tells him, his miracles, his teaching. Everything he does comes from the Father. And today, as we come to John chapter 8, there's a kind of paternity test that's happening that Jesus is inviting us to consider. What Jesus will present to us goes like this. See, our works tell us who our Father is. Those who don't hear Jesus' words are not of the Father God. And those who do hear Jesus' words are born of the Father. And Jesus stands out as this great example of one who hears consistently from his Father and does his Father's will. And so his paternity is true. See, as we dig into John chapter 8, here's our big idea this morning. We can only do what we hear, and we only hear from our true Father. As we get later on in our passage, we'll find out that there's two options for our Father. There's uh, the Heavenly Father, that when we hear his words, we have the confidence of eternal life. And then there's this earthly king that we call our Father Satan, And when we hear his words, we perform actions in keeping with our paternity. This morning, we got this weird thing going on in this text. And I want to address this really quickly at the front end. Uh, If you have questions, I invite your questions because I don't want you to get the sense that we're not uh, about the authority and the sufficiency of the scripture. But we finished last time in in John chapter 7, verse 52. And today we're going to preach John chapter 8, verses 12 through 53. And you're saying, Jason, do you not know how to count? Like, what's the problem here? When we look at, uh, if you have an ESV, if you look at John 7, 53 through John 8, 11, you'll find that they put brackets around this. And there's a, a footnote that says the earliest manuscripts do not include John 7, 53 through 8, 11. So what are we talking about? Why are we not talking about these verses. We need to have kind of a brief discussion about some heady stuff to kind of invite us into why we might not be talking about these verses in particular. See, our Bible comes to us through a long process of collection of manuscripts. For centuries, we've been collecting these fragments of manuscripts that we found in various places throughout the Near East. Our Bible comes to us through this long process of collecting, and these manuscripts, some are older and some are newer, right? We have older versions and newer versions, and and yet we have these variations between the different manuscripts that we have. 
So obviously, the older the text is dated, the more reliable it is to be true to the original text written. So somewhere in, in the first century, John is writing this letter, uh, the letter of John, and he's going to send it out to this audience. And copyists are going to start copying it to kind of multiply it and send it out to multiple people. But there's various errors that are going to show up in the copies. So the earlier manuscript that we get, the better the version is. See, this is a big deal because we believe that the Spirit kind of superintended the process of writing this original manuscript, John. And so these original manuscripts are are the flawless words of God. And getting our modern translations to be as close to these original autographs is a big deal, right? But most scholars, when they look at this text, they're saying, this isn't original to the book of John. I want to just give you three different facts that are up on the screen here. First, John 7:53 through 8:11 only appears in manuscripts dated after 400 AD. So the earliest manuscript that we have that can, includes these sections shows up somewhere through uh, the 400s, 450 somewhere in there. Secondly, none of the church fathers who existed, you know, second, third centuries, none of them actually include this when they make comments on these passages. So when they're looking at their versions of the text of John, they're not commenting on it, and we can assume that it's because they're not there in those copies. And finally, one of the the helpful things is that Don Carson and a few others have looked at this language in John chapter 8, and they're saying, this doesn't match the rest of the book. The way they're handling certain verbs and usages, it just doesn't look. In fact, what it really looks like, according to Don Carson, is, is the book of Luke. And so there's kind of reason for us to believe uh, we don't know if this was originally authored by some uh, biblical author or not, but we do see um, that it doesn't really match this book of John. So the question raised for us here this morning, is your Bible trustworthy? And the answer is overwhelmingly yes. Like your Bible is still very trustworthy. John Piper writes this. He says, there are 322 unsealed texts. There's 2,907 minuscule texts. There's 2,445 lectionary portions and 127 papyri for a total of 5,801 manuscripts. Now, you just heard me mess that up because I'm a pastor. I never deal with numbers bigger than 12, right? These are all handwritten copies of the New Testament, are parts of the New Testament, preserved in libraries around the world and now captured electronically. No other ancient book comes close to this kind of wealth of diverse preservation. So what we should see in John chapter 7:53 through 8:11 is not just this question of, is my Bible authoritative? Is it, is it trustworthy? Rather, we should see that God is preserving his scriptures by bringing information to light so that we would understand where these texts come from or have a confidence in certain texts that are here. Right? There's actually a way where we would look at this, where we would say, you know, God is actively pursuing us, or pursuing the uh, pr- preservation of his text uh, through uh, the discovery of these manuscripts. Now, enough of nerd stuff. Let's just look at this text for a second, and I'm just going to read through it, and I'm going to read through John 8, or 7:53 through 8:11, and we're not going to make much comment on it, but I just want to highlight that it does connect two points in our text. And we can understand why someone who was kind of copying these things might have inserted this as an illustration of what Jesus was saying. And so it says in 753, they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. 
Now, we want to highlight that this actually kind of illustrates a couple of different points in John chapter 7 and in John chapter 8. See, in both of those passages, Jesus is saying, I'm not the one who condemns you, or I'm not the one who condemns you right now. I'm not here to bring this condemnation. Uh, We'll see this later on in our text this morning. We can understand then how this was inserted into this passage as an illustration of what was stated in 724 and in 815, which both speak of this unjudging Jesus. But if we take this out, we kind of just take 753 through 811 out and we smash the rest of 7 and 8 together, we get one continuous story about the Feast of Tabernacles. If you look at verse 12, it starts with this phrase, again. It's continuing, picking up from where we left off in 752. And also, we'll kind of see later on as we dig into this passage, we'll see a little bit about how this is a continuation of what was formerly stated. So for that reason, we're, we're not going to pick up 753 through 811 today. We just want to kind of highlight this, that your Bible's still trustworthy, uh, that this doesn't change any major doctrine, that there's nothing new unpacked about Jesus. It doesn't tell us that Jesus had 16 fingers or two different heads or anything else. What it does tell us is it illustrates points that have already been made in other passages. And so we can have confidence in the scriptures that we have in front of us. Now, as we've said, here's our big idea. We can only do what we hear, and we only hear from our true Father. We're going to see this in three different movements. In verses 12 through 20, we're saying that Jesus is the light of the world. In verses 21 through 30, we're going to see that Jesus is going where they cannot come. And then true disciples in verses 31 through 59, true disciples uh, are those who abide in Jesus's word. And we're going to hang this upon three different statements that are kind of unprompted. And I want you to kind of, if you don't mind highlighting or writing in your Bible, I want you just to kind of uh, mark these verses because in the midst of the chaos of this passage, it can be easy for us to get lost. The first statement is in verse 12. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And the second statement is in verse 21. And Jesus says, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. And the final statement is in verse 31. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. I don't know if you've ever had this experience or not, where you are with a group of people. I call it the Thanksgiving dinner, right? Where you're with a group of people and an argument breaks out and things get ugly really quick, right? There are uh, bold statements made. There are confused reactions happening. There's all kinds of kind of, and the, the, the situation kind of escalates so that you're just uncomfortable as you're watching this play out. This is John chapter 8. We're going to see an argument break out. The relationship between the religious authorities and Jesus has so frayed that these religious authorities are genuinely just not going to understand what Jesus is getting at. And so we want to start into our first point here. Jesus is the light of the world in John chapter 8, verse 12 through 20. Look at verse 12 with me. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I come from, and I know where I'm going. But you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness, I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered them, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Jesus starts off with this statement, I am the light of the world, right? I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me uh, will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It's here that Jesus is presenting himself as light, In fact, this has kind of been a theme through the book of John. If we go back to John chapter 1 and verses 4 through 5, John said that in him, in Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not comprehend it or does not ascertain it. 
In fact, John's going to use this analogy later on in John chapter 9 next week and, and John chapter 12 later on. But Jesus isn't just this kind of illuminating presence. He's not just this light of the world. Notice what John, or Jesus says here. He says, I'm the light. I'm to be followed. He has something very particular in mind. Last week when we were in John chapter 7, we saw that uh, in the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, Philip Graham Ryken highlights that there's two different themes in the Feast of Tabernacles. There's a theme of water, and Jesus said, "Let him, whoever thirsts, come to me and drink in John 7, 37. But today we see the other theme, which is light. Jesus is kind of tapping into this light. But what is he specifically talking about? See, when Jesus says that he was the light of the world and that we were to follow him, it would tune every Jew who was listening into Exodus chapter 13, where this pillar of fire and cloud goes in front of the nation of Israel to lead them throughout the wilderness. That it's actually Jesus is associating himself with this part of the Exodus where God led his people through difficulty. As the Israelites cross over the Jordan, the angel of the Lord, a theophany of Jesus in the Old Testament, moves behind them and protects them from the Egyptian chariots. The angel of the Lord moves them through the desert. Jesus moves the people of Israel through the desert. And Jesus is associating this with himself. I am the light of the world. You must follow me. And so they raise up this objection in verse 13, and they say, no, 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 you're, you're bearing witness about yourself, Jesus. You're, you're, only the person, you're the only person testifying about yourself. And this is true to form in the Old Testament. An accusation was to be founded by two witnesses. We see this all throughout the Old Testament, but if someone was accused of murder, like in Numbers chapter 30, I believe it is, you're supposed to have two witnesses, and it's supposed to stop you. Like, if you don't like your mother-in-law, uh, like, accusing her of murder, so to get rid of her, right? That's a, okay, some of you are assuming bad things about me right now, but you need two witnesses. You can't just plant it on somebody to get rid of somebody you didn't like, Right? Jesus' response in verses 14 through 18 is just this. My father is also bearing witness about me. In verses 14 through 16, Jesus himself is, is saying, hey, my testimony might be unvalidated. It might not have two witnesses, but it's still true. But by the way, it is validated because my father is speaking about me too. That's what he goes on to say in, in um, verses 17 and 18. Look at verse 18. He says, I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Now, this conversation sounds familiar because we just had it in John chapter 5. John chapter 5 is Jesus saying, I don't bear witness about myself. John the Baptist bore witness about me. The scriptures bore, bore witness about me. And now my works are bearing witness to who I am. And all of these things are accomplished through my relationship with the Father. But the Jews get hung up on this. And they want to know where Jesus' father is in verses 19 through 20. So question number one is this, where is your father? i got to be honest, I think these guys are being kind of punks here. Um, that's a technical term in the Greek, punks, right? Being punks, they're, they're, they know all about Jesus' father's situation. In fact, that's been the issue in John chapter 5. You know, he's, he claims equality with his father, and that's why they want to kill him. Later on in this very passage, they're going to accuse him. In verse 41, they're going to say, we were not born of sexual immorality. That's kind of a, a dig at Jesus's progeny, that he's, uh, excuse me, uh, his father's progeny, that he came from some sort of immorality. Oh, they know all about his situation. Notice that verse 20 tells us that Jesus is in the treasury. Excuse me, let's go back. See, this is kind of an accusation. It would seem that they're goading Jesus to say something to kind of condemn himself. They want him to say that the Father in heaven is my Father. They want to pick up the stones. They want to kill him. And notice that all of this is happening, according to verse 20, in the treasury. You say, why is that a big deal? Well, the treasury is where the money is, and the money is where the guards are, right? All of this is happening where they have disposal to arrest and take Jesus into their custody. But it goes on. See, the summary of this section is that Jesus is light to be followed. It can sound really spiritual for us to say, oh, Jesus is, is the light. 
But it's good for us to determine what we mean by this. What does it mean that Jesus is light? Well, specifically, Jesus is saying that he's light for salvation. This is Jesus' role in the book of John. In John chapter 1, uh, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. Jesus has made him known. See, Jesus is pictured here as the God who leads us out of our slavery into the land of promise. That's what the pillar of cloud and fire was supposed to do. It was supposed to lead God's people to the promised place for them. And Jesus is identifying with this role. He's the one who's saving us from our slavery to sin and bringing us into this newness of life with God. See, this is now the second of Jesus' I am statements. In the book of John, there's seven I am statements. There's lots of sevens throughout the book of John. Seven signs, seven I am statements. This is the second that God has given us. and says, uh, John 6, I am the bread of life. And John 8 here, I am the light of the world. And John 10, we'll see, I am the door. Uh, and we'll also see, I am the good shepherd. And John chapter 11, Jesus will say, I am the resurrection and the life. And John 14, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And John 15, verses 1 and 5, I am the vine. See, Jesus is presenting himself throughout this book of John as this picture of life and vitality. And so just as this pillar of cloud leads Israel out of their slavery into this new relationship with God, Jesus is doing it in a different way. It's a reminder to us that Jesus has marched this path before us. And when we follow him, we avoid the dangers of sin and ultimate death, and we enjoy the warmth and presence of God's goodness. here's the question in front of us in our text. What happens when the light goes away? In fact, Jesus is going to bring this up in our next statement, verses 21 through 30. What happens when the light goes away? We all know that Jesus is about to be taken to his death and eventually ascend to the right hand of the Father. But Jesus' audience didn't know that. And so in this 21 through 30, Jesus is warning them, I'm going, and where I'm going, you cannot come. And you're going to die in your sins. Look at verse 21. Jesus said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says, where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. See, the statement is made there in verse 21. I am, a going, I am going away, and you will seek me. You will die in your sins. Where I am going, you cannot come. Basically, Jesus is saying, I'm the light of the world, and I'm not going to be here forever. These people will seek him to no avail. We look at verse 14 and what's stated here. Jesus is saying, you don't know where I came from, and you don't know where I'm going. He's talking about Cotton Eye Joe. He's the original Cotton Eye Joe, right? Where do you come from? Where do you go? Where do you come from, Cotton Eye Joe? Jesus is saying, you don't know where I'm from. You don't know where I'm going. There's all kinds of commotion and confusion in verse 22. Is he going to kill himself? I mean, this crowd is completely and utterly confused. And Jesus responds in verses 23 through 24, I am from above, you're from below. Uh, Jesus explains their spiritual confusion saying, you and I are not alike. I am from a different place than you are. And he's not saying this arrogantly or boastfully. He's just trying to explain why they're not comprehending what he's saying. And Jesus cuts to the chase in verse 24. He says, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So the natural question becomes, who are you, Jesus? That's what they ask in verse 25. Look at verse 25 with me. So they said to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much. speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, 
that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. They asked the question, who are you? This conversation starts to feel like talking with a three-year-old, right? They're, they're saying, why, why, what, who, where, right? Jesus says, I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I've heard from him. Finally, Jesus isn't just recognized by his words, he's recognized by his death. Verse 28, he says, so Jesus said to them, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. You know, back in, in Matthew, there's a, a, a discussion with Jesus, and Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you one sign, and it's the sign of Jonah. I'm going to go into the ground for three days, and that's the sign that I'm going to give you to believe on me. And Jesus is saying, here, you're going to recognize me when I'm lifted up on a cross. That's when you're going to know me. That's when you're going to realize who I am. See, the truth is, this morning, just uh, Jesus is speaking to these individuals saying, I'm going to go away. You're no longer going to see the light of the world. That's what we have right now, right? You can't uh, go to Jesus' physical address here on the earth. You don't have a cell phone number by which to call Jesus. Jesus isn't someone that we can physically touch and hear with our ears. There's someone uh, that relates to us entirely spiritually. It's funny that so many times we hear that as kind of a response uh, to faith, to things of faith. Why doesn't God just prove himself to me? Why doesn't God just speak to me? Why doesn't he write it across the sky that he's forgiven my sins through the death and resurrection that he performed? He's written it in his scriptures. The claims of Christ are here to be dealt with, either to be believed upon or not believed upon, Right? Either you hear what's said and you respond in faith, or you do not. It's amazing how we look for physical proofs to spiritual realities. So he goes on in verses 31 through 59. Jesus is going to lay out what true discipleship looks like. So verse 31, we, we have, in verse 30, we have all these people who are starting to believe in Jesus, and whatever's happening, it kind of sours by the end of our chapter here in John chapter 8. And so in 31, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you will become, how is it that you say you will become free? Jesus makes this statement, right? If you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples, and you're truly free, right? The, the sun, uh, the, the light of the world is going away, and when you hear my words and abide in my words, you're truly my disciples. You uh, anticipate resurrection. You avoid death. This is what it is to be my disciples. And Jesus offers true discipleship, not by following a guy around in the desert, but by anticipating and hearing his words. Question number four just shows the confusion yet again. They answered him, we are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. I'm just telling you, a five-year-old could see through this. Do you remember Egypt? When you were enslaved in Egypt? What about Babylon? You were enslaved in Babylon. Like Daniel, that was kind of a thing. Remember that? When they carried you out of the promised land? How foolish are we here? And Jesus responds with this kind of spiritual reality. He redirects in verses 33 through 38, and he says, anyone who has sinned is a slave to sin. So look at verse 34. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. 
I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Israel had been enslaved by just about everyone in the ancient Near Eastern world, but Jesus redirects this reality to say, no, you're a slave to sin. Spiritual slavery is not bondage to idols or false gods. Spiritual slavery is a bondage to sin and the practices of sin. Jesus sees our sins as spiritual slavery. And if you're here this morning, you're saying, my sin is not a big deal. Notice the words of Jesus here this morning. You are a slave to that thing that you are given over to. Notice also that Jesus sets slaves free. What he does is he gives us this logic. He says in, in verse 38, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. He's highlighting who he is as the son and who we are as the slaves to sin. And he's saying, because I remain forever, because I have this authority, when I set you free, you are truly free. You're free forever. You're not going to be enslaved again. Once I make you free, you are truly free from sin and from death. There's nothing that can hold you in bondage anymore. I have died and been raised to life so that you might be freed from those things. Maybe we need to hear that this morning, huh? Need to know of the provision of God's grace that is unending, that when God sets us free in Christ, we are free indeed. Verse 39 through 47. Look there with me. So they answer him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your fa that your father did. And they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? Is it because you cannot bear to hear my word? You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. He raised this objection in verse 39. Abraham's our dad, right? Abraham's our father. And, and Jesus looks back at them and says, you know, Abraham wasn't a murderer, and you're seeking to kill me. So you're not obviously of Abraham. And then they respond back and say, no, 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 God is our father. And Jesus responds, if God were your father, in verse 43, you would love me. But your father is really the devil, in verse 44. And what he does is he gives two different evidences for this. In verse 44, he says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. And look what he says. He gives us two evidences. He says he was a murderer and he was a liar. Right? He says that in verse 44. He was a murderer from the beginning. What are the Jews trying to do right now with Jesus? Trying to kill him. He's a liar. What are they doing right now? They're rejecting the truth. So Jesus is looking at them and saying, you are like your father, the devil. You are murderous and lying people. Verse 47, he, he wraps it all up. He says, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Jesus lays it out so plainly here, doesn't he? 
He's saying, if, if you hear what I'm saying, if you resonate, if you believe, if you hear the light of the world and you follow the light of the world through abiding in his words, guess what? You're of God. You've been born from above. Like I told Nicodemus, you must be born again. You've been reborn, renewed in my death and resurrection. But if you don't hear my words, guess what? That's also an indication that you are not as close to the Father as you think. If you hear my words and reject me, you can't be on good standing in good standing with the Father. See, what happens from here is that these Jews present an alternate truth in verse 48. They say, uh, this man's a Samaritan and he has a demon. We love conspiracy theories now, don't we? We have little bits of facts that we kind of cling on to, and we kind of string those together with these conspiracy theories, right? I've kind of collected them. I think they're kind of fun. My favorite are uh, one person told me that uh, when they got a vaccine, their friend became magnetic, like stuff stuck to them. I thought, that's ridiculous, right? We hear all of these little bits and pieces of information, and we string them together in the best way we know how, and we come up with these theories, hoping that's not my car. It's not, anyway. What's happening here is that these adversaries of Jesus are stringing together bits and facts, bits and pieces, and they're trying to explain away Jesus according to their own understanding. And so they say, this man has a demon in verse 48. Look at verse 49. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Hey, Jesus, how is it that you claim you'll never die when Abraham died, when Moses died, when Joseph died? They're carrying these guys' bones throughout the Old Testament. Verse 54, Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Before we miss this, this term, I am, that Jesus is using is the way that God described himself out of the burning bush to Moses. Moses says, what should I say your name is when I go to Egypt and re represent you to your people? And Jesus says, or God says from the burning bush, uh, I'm, I'm Yahweh, I am. And Jesus is tapping into that identity to say, before Jesus, Abraham was, by the way, he's dead, he's gone, past tense, before Abraham was, I am, present tense, perfect tense, ongoing. And so this whole interaction here kind of culminates this identity of Jesus who's saying, the Father is constantly validating me. So what happens in verse 59 is they pick up stones. It's a precursor to what's going to happen just a few chapters later. They pick up stones and they're ready to put the Son of God who's never sinned in all of his life to death. But it's not Jesus' hour. Jesus hides himself and went out of the temple. You might stop and say, what's this all about? This is just a lot of meandering, a lot of conversation, a lot of kind of questioning, a lot of argument. What's happening here? We want to come back to those three statements, right? First, Jesus describes himself as the light of the world, that if we follow this light, we will avoid eternal death. And Jesus goes on to say, he say, I'm going away and you will die in your sins if you don't believe my word. And then finally, in, in verse 31, he says, if we abide in his word, we're truly his disciples. And we know truth and truth sets us free. Amazing how Jesus stays on message amidst so much confusion, so much 
manipulation. But it reminds us this morning that Jesus' word is to be trusted. You see our predicament, right? Jesus is the light to be followed, but he's not here. So his words should be defining us, but there is a problem. Our ears are spiritually deaf to him, and our eyes cannot physically see him. See, the truth is this morning that Jesus speaks to unhearing people. Verse 43 is the culmination of this. When Jesus is speaking to this audience, he says, why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. In fact, the NIV would actually translate it, because you are unable to hear what I say. See, Jesus is actually highlighting the spiritual reality that Isaiah would tell us was the case. Isaiah chapter 6, God calls Isaiah the prophet, and he's saying, you're going to go to a people who, though seeing will not see, though hearing will not hear. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says that spiritual things are spiritually ascertained, that they're spiritually understood, that the natural man, that is us in our sin, we can't understand spiritual claims. It's not simply that they can't hear. It's that their words and actions prove them to be unhearing and therefore of their father, the devil. Look at the things that Jesus has said to these people throughout this passage. He says, if you knew me, you would know my father also. If you believe my words, you would know my father. Verse 37, you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. Verse 40, but now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. Their actions are highlighting that they're out of sync with the father that they claim to know and love. Instead, they're doing what their father, Satan, has done from the beginning, murdering, lying. This is where I love what Jesus says. Jesus says he's going to confirm his identity through one action. If you look at verse 28 and 29, we have this amazing statement from Jesus. How do we know that Jesus is from God? How do we know that he is who he says he is? And he says this in John chapter 8, 28 and 29. He says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, that I can do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Just keep that passage in mind for a second as I want to unpack some of the truths that are given here. Jesus' plan is to validate his relationship to the Father through his death and resurrection. He's going to prove himself to these individuals through his own death. He says, uh, nothing he does is his own. And verse 28 says, I do nothing on my own authority. Everything I do, I'm hearing from the Father. I'm acting out what the Father is telling me to do. Verse 28 says, he speaks from the Father. Um, I speak just as the Father taught me. Here's the picture of faithfulness and fidelity from the Son of God. And then in verse 29, it says that he has pleased the Father, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. If death was the punishment for sin, Jesus had no sin and therefore couldn't be held by death. Even now, Jesus validates himself to us by his death and resurrection. Think about that. Like we said before, that the truth of Jesus' death and resurrection is still at work today. It's still something that we need to reckon with. We can be dismissive of it. We can say that these words aren't true. It's not uh, possible. It's not scientific. It's not whatever. We can make all of these claims and say, let's just be dismissive of the claims of, of Christ. But when we get down to brass tacks, we have to account for this story of an empty tomb and the validations that are written in this text. We'll get there in John chapter 20 eventually. See, the echo of the empty tomb is something for all generations to give an accounting for. But the truth of it this morning is this. You and I are meant to sit beneath the words of God, not above them. You and I are meant to 
be under the authority of God, not above it, not to uh, assess these things from uh, kind of far off and say, I am um, a man of knowledge and understanding, and I can use logic and reason, and I can dismiss the claims of Christ because I am a logical, reasonable, per reasonable person. Well, these are the words of God, and what they say have to be dealt, dealt with and reckoned with. I know we're over our time. Thank you for being patient. I just have a few more things, okay? There's an author by the name of Carl Truman. I was listening to a podcast that he was on recently this week, and uh, Truman is, is writing about this idea of we have an insulated self, that when we hear truth claims, we no longer assess them by the means of kind of their um, truthfulness or reasonability. We assess them based upon our emotion and therapeutic understanding. Truman gives the example. He says, 50 years ago, if you went into your doctor and you said, I am a woman stuck in a man's body, your doctor would look at you and say, then we need to bring your mind in conformity with your body. We need to do some, some reasoning with your self-understanding. But now, if you go into a doctor and you say, I am a woman stuck in a man's body, what a doctor will tell you is to say, we need to bring your body in conformity with your mind. You see the difference? We've changed. We've insulated ourselves from truthfulness and reality so that we assess reality based upon what we think and how we understand. Primarily, we do this emotionally. We do this on the basis of therapy. We say, this is true because it's good for me and it makes me feel good about myself. We might just be dismissive and say, this is primarily a liberal problem. Uh, we see this in the liberal communities. The political kind of left identifies with this. They, they embrace this idea. But I want to bring out that it's also a problem for our conservative right-minded friends. A few examples I've had. A friend told me about a, a conversation they were having about election. The, the scriptural doctrine that God pre-knows, that he, pre, uh, by his sovereign election, is foreordained knowledge. He comes to uh, choose those before the foundations of the earth, like Ephesians 1. And, and this person went to Romans chapter 9 and talked about, Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. And this person that uh, my friend was talking to just looked back at them and said, yeah, I don't like that passage. They were the assessor. They stood above and they said, no, I'm not going to accept that truth. When I was in college, I had a friend and after I graduated, uh, a friend of mine kind of clued my attention to this uh, website called Cedarville Out. It was for uh, Cedarville graduates, where I was a graduate from, that had come out as openly homosexual. And this Bible major friend of mine who was in the hallway with me came out, and I can't remember the exact statement, but it was something like this. It says, if it's, um, he said, if being true to oneself is sin, then I don't want to be Christian. If being true to oneself is sin, then I don't want to be Christian. He, he stood above the truth and he made a value claim. He made an assessment about the truth of the Bible and what it says about our sexual ethic and he denied it and he said, I'm going to go on and I'm going to accept these forms of Christianity and I'm going to deny these forms of Christianity and that is the Christianity that I'm going to live. You see that prevalent in our culture? It's not just a liberal or conservative problem. This is a societal problem. You and I like to put ourselves in this place of, of the divine. We like to, to set ourselves on the throne of God and say, this is true, this is not true. I accept this, I deny this. And all the while, Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world. We're meant to follow. You ever have the experience where you're driving somewhere and there's maybe three or four adults in the car with you and you get a couple backseat drivers? You ever have that experience? People telling you what you need to do and what you don't need to do? That just shuts me down. I just want to like slam on the brakes in the middle of the highway and start screaming, right? So don't do that if you're in the car with me at some point. I want to keep my Christian faith, right? We want to be backseat drivers to the sovereign God of the universe. 
We want to sit from the back seat and tell him how to do his job. What that calls for is repentance, right? See, our tendency is to want control of our destiny. We want to do the Invictus poem, right? I am the master of my ship. We have no idea what we're asking for. You and I, we're like a, we're, it's like our, our lives are a boat at sea. And we want to strain at the oars. We want to push and push and define our destiny. And what we need is a tugboat. We need someone to chain us to themselves and take us to the shore because they know north from south and east from west. They know the currents. They know the shark-infested waters better than we would ever know them. We need to follow the light of the world. Guys, this is why we preach. This is why we study the words of God, because my sinful heart needs to be overcome. It needs to be subdued by the sovereign hand of God through his powerful words that do its work in me. Every day, I need to be subdued. I need that sinful heart pushed down so that the love and authority of God can shine through me. It's what we need. We need to be reminded of God's powerful work at the cross, that he had to deal with my sin through his own son's death and resurrection. We need to be reminded of my sinfulness that has pushed me away from the presence of God. And now, through God's redeeming work in Christ, he's proven himself through death and resurrection. That's what we need. And God's words remind us of this. It's a call for us to put ourselves beneath the words of the mighty God himself so that we might be softened in his presence. Let's be people who are soft. Let's pray. Lord, we pray now that you would soften us through your scriptures. We pray now that you would put us beneath your palm, that you would crush us with your scriptures, God. Allow us to hear your words so that we might have you as our loving Father and Christ as our loving Savior. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.